Hi, Filled With Messages friends. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Ruth Farrell, and amongst other things, I'm the lead pastor of St. Peter United Church of Christ in Lake Zurich, Illinois. I have several friends whose children sometimes practice reciting their Sunday school scripture memory verses with me. Here's the thing. I don't care if they get every word right. As soon as they're done rattling off the passage, I respond, sounds good enough to me, but what does it mean? That often earns me either a big old eye roll or what I call a Sunday school answer, a memorized interpretation of the verse, which then prompts me to say, what does it mean to you? And then the child or teen leaves the room quicker than I've ever seen them move before. It's no fun having an auntie who's pastor some days. But then I bake them treats and I'm back in their good graces. Speaking of graces, grace is one of those words we toss around a lot in church. But if pressed, we might have a hard time explaining what it means. Maybe we'd be able to give a rote response like the mnemonic I learned in Sunday school approximately 100 years ago. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. I am 100% sure that can response didn't help me understand grace at all. If you're in a place where you could write something down, would you grab a pen and paper right now? Or if you're walking or driving while you're listening, you can just think about this question. Would you either use their minds or use that piece of paper and pencil or pen to write down or draw a picture of grace? What comes to mind when you think of grace? And now generally, I'm a person who believes there are no wrong answers, but in this case, the wrong answer would be either a Sunday school response, like the one I learned when I was a kid, or a drawing of my college roommate or any other person named Grace. Unless, I suppose, Grace really was the epitome of Grace. I encourage you to pause the podcast for a moment and think about these things, and then unpause me when you're done thinking. When you think of the word grace, what images, metaphors, words, experiences come to mind? In her book, Saving Grace, Kirsten Powers writes, grace is what makes human coexistence possible. Every thriving relationship in history between friends, family, communities, and countries has been saturated with grace. Grace is what lets us stumble, fall, get back up, and try again. Grace is what welcomes you back after you have failed someone or failed yourself. Grace is what the Franciscan priest and writer Richard Roars calls the X factor. It knits families, friendships, and countries back together after betrayal, hurt, and even violence. It's the father running to embrace the prodigal son when he's starving, penniless. Grace is the original self-care. It shushes the hectoring inner critic that tells us we are too much, too little, too fat, too thin, too good and not good enough. Grace invites us off the hedonic treadmill of relentless achievement and success, which never delivers the happiness it promises. 
Christ doesn't care what your waist size is and celebrates every new wrinkle as evidence of wisdom earned. Grace shrugs at your unachieved New Year's resolutions and teaches you to be kind to yourself just because. Grace reminds you of the love yourself part of Jesus' command, love others as much as you love yourself. Grace is amazing. Today's scripture passage is a story about grace. It's one we've heard many, many times. May the Holy Spirit help us to hear it afresh now. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Now there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father called his servants and said to them, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother's of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, open our hearts, our minds, our bodies to hear you speaking to us through these very familiar words. 
this very familiar story. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may this be may they be acceptable in your eyes, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. The family in Jesus' parable is extremely dysfunctional. In particular, both sons are a hot mess, and kids don't become hot messes by themselves. I wonder what happened to bring this family into such disarray. There's no mom mentioned in the story, so maybe she passed away while the boys were young. Maybe they didn't have anyone to offer them mothering love. And the dad tried as hard as he could, but we can't be everything to everyone, no matter how much we try. Something drove the younger son to act with incredible immaturity and a complete lack of grace when he demanded his father give him his inheritance early. The younger son's request was tantamount to wishing his father dead. He wanted his dad gone so he could get on with his life. Can you imagine the hurt the father felt when his beloved son treated him with such disdain? Maybe the father even wished himself dead rather than live with the shame inflicted on him by his ungrateful and ungracious son. Do you think he protested his son's request, tried to get him to change his mind, or did the father give in to his son's demands quickly? Whatever option the father chose, I suspect he hoped that he would be able to maintain a scrap of a relationship with his child. It would have been one thing if the younger son had asked for his inheritance early in order to buy a home for his family or start a new business. But instead, the younger son's immaturity was on display as he squandered all his father had given him. When there was a severe famine, he had no savings, no backup plan, not even friends who would help him in his time of need. He took the only job he could find, feeding pigs. For a Jewish person in Jesus' days, this was just about the most shameful job someone could have. Pigs were unclean according to the Jewish law, and therefore anyone who worked with them was as well. An unclean person couldn't interact with the rest of society or even attend worship services. But the younger son doesn't seem mature enough to have been bothered by his new profession. But what did get his attention was his stomach. He was so very hungry. One might hope that some adversity would help the younger son gain some perspective and humility but the younger son simply begins to scheme about how he might con his father into helping him. One writer paraphrases the son's thoughts. Wait a minute, I know a place where I can get some food. Recalling that his father's hired hands ate pretty well, he cooks up a scheme in which he'll return home, feign contrition, and then at the end of his speech, oh so humbly throw in a suggestion. Dear father, I expect no special treatment. Just treat me like one of your hired hands. If you were the father in this story, what would the years since your younger son left have been like? Would you have harbored resentment and anger towards your younger son, 
allowing it to turn into bitterness. I don't think anyone could have blamed the father if he did. But apparently the father had somehow managed to hold on to hope that he would once again see his beloved child. He had done the hard work of forgiving his ungrateful child and releasing the hurt every time it popped up. He had decided to choose grace. So when he saw his son in the distance, he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. He commanded his servants to help his beloved child get cleaned up and start preparing for a huge party. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. While the father had worked hard to ensure bitterness did not become the driving force of his life, the older brother had not been able to do the same. He seems to have nursed resentment towards his brother and father. Heartbreakingly, the hurt and pain he experienced throughout his life led him to believe his worth lie in working hard and doing the right thing. He had grown to believe grace was not a gift offered to him, and one, therefore, that he could not offer either. He had come to believe kindness and love were something which should be earned, not something given freely. Many of us empathize with the older son. We feel his pain and wonder why his father couldn't empathize with it. Wouldn't a good, kind, gracious parent have seen their child's growing bitterness and resentment and tried to gently love their child to a place of peace and grace? Why doesn't the father have the same grace for his older son that he has for the younger son? Perhaps it helps if we think about the reason Jesus told this parable. Because a parable is a story told to make a specific point. Jesus told this story and two others to a group of people who thought they were better because they followed all the rules and had decided that people who didn't follow the rules were outside of God's grace. But parables are also broadly painted and are fictional. While it's good to place ourselves in them, empathize with their characters, and there is a long Christian tradition of using our imaginations while exploring them, there is a limit to them as well. Jesus' stories don't fill in every little detail because that's not the point. In this case, the point Jesus is trying to make is that God wants us to extend grace to everyone, no matter what. And that's hard news for all of us. Here's a little more from Kirsten Powers. In a country that fetishizes accomplishment, tells people they can hustle and grind their way to worth, and fancies itself a meritocracy, many, like the older brother, are offended by the idea that other people would get something they haven't earned. Practicing grace, in other words, can be really hard. It's something we love to receive, but often the last thing we want to offer. Instead, we incline ourselves towards withholding that which the world desperately needs. We become the older brother, glowering in the background, jealous and fuming about how undeserving his younger brother is of his father's affection and forgiveness. Ungrace has become the lingua franca of our discourse. 
More often than not, it's the lens through which we view people who don't share our religious, political, or moral values. Those people may be our leaders, coworkers, neighbors, or increasingly members of our own families. Where do you struggle to practice grace? In what situations, with what people, has ungrace become your norm? May we learn to walk with Jesus in the way of abundant, extravagant, full-to-the-brim grace. Thank you for joining me today, my friends. I'm so grateful for Kirsten Powers' thoughts about grace and also for the SALT Project's commentary on the younger son's thoughts. As you go from here, may grace be the song you sing. May grace overflow from your life into the lives of those around you. May you never hesitate to give grace. Grace and peace to you, my dear friends. I'll talk to you soon. Goodbye.